0: I'm Kate Daniels. One of the bigger conversations going on currently is one on transgender. For many of us, this is relatively new, likely not understood, certainly not well understood. And that's the thing with any newer subject and idea, it's important to be informed. And so my guest this morning, Heath Fogg Davis, is here to do just that, inform and educate, and direct us to where we can find further information. Heath is a scholar-activist, a trans man, and author. His book, Beyond Trans, Does Gender Matter?, provides a comprehensive look at this subject, addressing it from different perspectives, and it's sure to be of great benefit. So, let's meet Heath and begin to get some insights and perhaps build on them as well. Heath Pog Davis, good morning and thank you so greatly for your work and, of course, for being here with us this morning.
1: Good morning. It's great to be with you, Kate. Thank you.
0: You're welcome, and I really appreciate your taking this time this morning. It's uh Another kind of whirling, uh, confusing time for us and just so much going on. And your book, having just come out, uh, Beyond Trans, Does Gender Matter?, I think fits so well into giving you, um, I'm going to say, an authoritative voice to make some commentary and some really uh, unsettling, uh, upheaval kind of comments that came uh, from the White House just recently.
1: Yes. Yeah. And, um, you know, I I wrote the book because I felt that it was, uh, we're at a time in our culture where a lot of people, most people have heard of the term transgender and they know something, you know, something about it. But I think um, people are also kind of eager for a deeper understanding of what the identity of transgender means and also the forms of discrimination that transgender people experience. And so what we experienced with the president's tweets about um, lifting the ban um, or reinstating, excuse me, reinstating the ban on transgender uh, service people uh, is an example of a kind of an outright exclusion. Um, And then there are a whole other array of of forms of discrimination uh, that people with transgender identities face. So my hope was to give people um, a sort of a set of pragmatic uh, strategies for both understanding trans, transgender identities and also for uh, making changes in, in policies to make, to make it easier for people with, uh, with the transgender experience uh, and also to help us all. So that was sort of my, my goal with the book
0: and that I I feel really is um, such a critical gift here that you present us in Beyond Trans, uh, is that we need more of this education. And I would think that even if we're not so well-informed, most of us probably had this jaw-dropping feeling when we read or heard about the tweet uh, that came out. I'm sure for you, you, perhaps your heart just dropped.
1: Yeah, it, it's, it's extremely troubling, you know, and um, I, you know, I've been asked in some of the, the commentary that I've done, you know, was I surprised? Is it shocking? And on, on one level it is, but it's also perhaps not so much. Um, uh, I think that the, the heartening thing for me is that right away uh, you saw many, many people rally um, to sort of... Um, oppose that stance um, and even, you know, even conservative politicians um, stepping forward and saying that it's, that it's un- unacceptable. Not only is it morally problematic, but it's also um, it doesn't make any sense from uh, a policy perspective. So anytime you have a policy that's implemented, you have to have at least some kind of um, rational basis for it. And that's the basic legal standard. using the language of, you know, that transgender people would be disruptive and that the medical costs would be exorbitant. Both of those things have been debunked. And so there's no there's no evidence that transgender military uh, people are disruptive just by their mere presence. Um, and also this uh, the, the claim about the, the high medical cost of incorporating them and paying for healthcare has also been um, debunked. Um, so it's actually health care for trans military people be a very small percentage of the overall budget for health benefits in the military.
0: Yes. And that is th- the thing that we want to highlight, uh, underscore, uh, is to realize that there, there's just a lot of verbiage going on. And to really seek after some of the facts and beyond that to have this understanding. And that's where I feel that because of the research, because of your life, because of your passion in wanting to educate and inform and being so involved in, in policies, uh, I think around the country, but but certainly uh, in Pennsylvania where you live, Beyond Trans really helps the rest of us get these important insights. And that was your purpose, correct?
1: Absolutely. And also, you know, I am a professor, so I also wanted to write a book that was accessible and made sense uh, to people outside of academia. I think that that sometimes um, there's some some truth to the stereotype about, uh, you know, us working in the um, ivory tower and not always, you know, using a lot of jargon and, and kind of alienating people with our, with our um, with our the way that we write books and so I tried to write this book in a way that was um, that, that that spoke to what I feel like you just talked about um, first of all giving most people I think the benefit of the doubt I continue to be optimistic that most people are good um, and that they want to do the right thing and I think that overall although there are you know there are hate groups and there are people who have, that kind of agenda. I think for most most Americans, they 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 want to do the right thing, but they don't necessarily know what that is. And so, you know, if you're in a workplace and you have a colleague who announces that they are, you know, going to undergo a gender transition, um, what what's expected, you know, in that environment? Um, I think that that is something that um, you know causes people a lot of concern because. No, we, nobody wants to be wrong you know nobody wants to say the wrong thing nobody wants to embarrass themselves or embarrass uh, somebody who is a co-worker or a friend or an acquaintance so in the book I go through these these different case studies um, and, and talk about these different environments and contexts and just asking this very basic question does gender matter in this particular moment in this context and a lot of times it doesn't we assume that it does but I really argue that it doesn't. And then there are times when gender does matter. And I think when those moments occur occur, then I think the onus is on <clears throat> the people who, who make our you know application forms. You always have to check a male or a female box. I mean very very sort of standard form to explain to the people filling out those forms why they're at being asked about their gender identity um, uh, as just a basic kind of first step.
0: And thinking in terms of these forms and checking off the little boxes, um, so you're saying there are times that it's important, but also probably more of the time, really, just as in the question of race, we have the option of answering it or not. You're suggesting and really uh, proposing that that same option be given where gender is concerned.
1: Yes, exactly. And in some cases... You know, it, it's interesting that you, you brought up race as a, an, another example to compare because historically we've seen um, racial uh, boxes on forms uh, change a lot, just as you alluded to. So, for example, um, on our driver's licenses, it used to be the case that we had race markers. I remember this probably back in the early 90s when I lived in Massachusetts, they, they, I had a race marker on my driver's license. Um, And then we moved away from that, and now currently we don't have race markers on our licenses. Why? Because they were deemed not only sort of unnecessary, um, because if you think about the purpose of a driver's license, it's basically to make sure that that, – to verify your personal identity, and you could think that a photo would be enough for that, although we could talk about the ways in which our appearance changes and we don't always look like our photos from – a couple years ago, but um, but yeah, so the the reason why we got race markers off of driver's licenses and, and why it's optional on a lot of forms is because historically the country has a very bad history with, you know, the times when the government has invoked race. It's been historically a lot of times in a discriminatory way, um, and so we want to be very careful about when and when when and where and how we ask people about their racial identities, and I think we should take a similar approach with gender.
0: And you share uh, in, in case studies and sharing the stories of a, a variety of experiences. I mean, some of them are just so heart-wrenching. They're painful in how it's questioned. You, you share right at the outset about how bus passes are marked in Philadelphia. I, I was astounded to even con- see that that was the case, and then it—it it is so. It feels brutal the way that that was then applied to people, questioning them and not allowing them to use their passes. It's, it's shocking.
1: Yeah, and you know, in that I, I open the book with that example. Um, so our local uh, transport, you know, public transportation company in the city of Philadelphia. Um, It no longer, I should point this out, no longer uh, gender marks its bus passes, but it did from 1981 all the way up to uh, 2013. And so whenever you bought a monthly pass in the city here, um, you had to have an M or an F marker, a sticker attached to that uh, bus pass, and it seems... Ridiculous in retrospect, and you know, but the fact of the matter is that for decades this policy was in place and it didn't make any sense. It caused uh, some transgender people who appeared to a bus driver to be maybe transgender or gender non conforming, uh, but it also, and I point this out in the book, it also negatively affected non transgender people who, you know, uh, a non transgender woman with short hair, you know, or somebody who um, in in some kind of way maybe is androgynous. I mean, there's so many, this is a big point of the book, that it's not just transgender people who are negatively impacted by a lot of our gender policies. This is about gender policing, and that's something that goes way beyond um, just transgender people. We have very strict rules in our society about how women and men should, should look, and the problem with this uh, bus pass is that it then gave the authority to bus drivers uh, to make a decision about whether the person in front of them uh, met their own subjective standards of what a what a woman should look like and what a man should look like. And not only does this give the opportunity for them to discriminate, but they argue that it also it puts them in a very in a position that they shouldn't be in the first place. and then I, I sort of extrapolate out and say, that's true with the people looking at our driver's licenses and our passports and a whole other set of um, gender policies.
0: Exactly. And that's where reading these stories, if, if we feel, and I think probably the majority of us feel uninformed, we want to, I hope, really understand this is where Beyond Trans really helps us through the stories, through the case studies, to to just get a sense of the nuances because, well, going back to checking off little boxes, it's it's not that simple. There's really a very broad spectrum, and I think that's where we need to gain a sensitivity to it.
1: I, I agree exactly with what you, you just said, and uh, thank you for saying that. You know, you think about, um, you know, my own story, and I offer some of my own story in the book because um, I think it's important to get our stories out there so that we get away from stereotypes around. Uh, I think a lot of people have one, you know, stereotype image in their mind about what a transgender person looks like. And yes, you know, Caitlyn Jenner is, is, is a trans woman. Um, and th- that's one story, you know, and then there's a whole wide range there are also people who don't um, identify as male or female uh, but identify as non-binary or gender-fluid and have a, you know, and so uh, that's not my experience. And to be honest, it's so that's difficult. It's a stretch for me to kind of really understand that experience. but But I want to, and I think we should, and you can imagine for somebody who doesn't, you know, clearly identifies male or female whenever they're presented with a form with these two boxes. It's a complete situation that where they, cannot, um, they can't be accommodated. So I think given that we have a, a gender spectrum rather than just this binary, um, I think that we should be careful. Uh, the default should be not to ask people about their gender unless it absolutely is necessary. And if it's necessary, then I think that we need an explanation about why that is.
0: And I suppose there would be uh, comments saying that, well, one of those places uh, would be public bathrooms. And if, and you cover that as a, an important section in the book. But again, uh, we're seeing that that is perhaps, uh, we're beginning to question it and we're beginning to see changes. Wouldn't you say so, Heath?
1: Yes, and I'm glad that you brought up that example that, you know, that has been in the news, and we think about the, the law that North Carolina passed about its bathrooms, um, and then since then, the law has been overturned, um, but yes, that, that's played, and I have a chapter on this where I talk about that issue. For me, if you think about what, what you know, what's the policy objective when it comes to public about it, it's it's about privacy and it's about safety. And, uh, and both of those things can be um, achieved through building uh, bathrooms in a different way. So my suggestion is, um, and we have some examples of this in Philadelphia and New York and increasingly in some other places too, where you have a, a gender neutral bathroom with a series of individual toilet stalls and you have partitions from the ceiling to the floor. So that you give individual people their privacy Uh, and you have a series of these. Um, And then in the middle, uh, you have sinks and mirrors and people can wash their hands. And um, there's no need, I don't think, to gender segregate that. So that's an example where it seems like we're talking about gender, uh, but actually what we want in those scenarios is is physical privacy. And I think that's a very reasonable expectation for when we're in public to, to expect that. I also think that the way that bathrooms are constructed right now um, are not safe, especially for women and girls. And so people you know, bring up this example, well, what about, you know, um, the man who is going to dress up as a woman and go in and, and commit a, you know, assault on women and girls. You know, first of all, that's never happened. Um, but we do, unfortunately in our society have some examples. It happened on my campus um, a few years ago where, um, Individual girls and women are assaulted in in public bathrooms by men who didn't care about the gender marker on the door. So I think that that just kind of debunking that whole stereotype and then zooming in on what's reasonable and what we really want is privacy and safety. And I think that there are um, architectural solutions for that.
0: And I think there's probably evidence, I know we have that type of a bathroom in one of the public areas that I went to here in Seattle, and it it seemed to be just, it felt natural. Uh, I've never heard of anything negative happening there. Is that your experience, too, of what you've heard? Like you mentioned in New York, they've had that. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And um, as I've talked to people, you know, It's it's the kind of um, kind of radical reform that I really love because most people um, don't even notice really that there's a radical change you know uh, because they see there are individual you know stalls where they can again have their privacy um, and it's so my my sense is that it's hard to make an argument against that kind of a scenario and I like. I like it a lot because even for people who, who are coming from a conservative perspective um, and have uh, about sort of social traditions, about whatever, like, you know, men and women not mixing in certain environments, um, even for those individuals, I think that this is a pretty good solution uh, because effectively you have uh, your gender segregated in the, in the sense right down to your individual person so that that's that's taken care of um so for me it's a it's an example of a win-win kind of a solution it seems when we started out talking about it you know people it seems uh very radical and when i talk to my students about this it's very interesting increasingly um they're very they're very open for the most part to to a lot of that uh, those kinds of solutions
0: and part of it is as we uh, as change begins to happen, as they grow up in a situation like that, there's it begins to feel more normalized too.
1: Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And I I see, you know. So as a professor, and I've been teaching at Temple for almost twelve years now, and then prior to that, I was teaching at University of Wisconsin in Madison uh, for five years. So. I'm constantly, you know, I'm constantly working with um, young people, you know, who are 18 to the early 20s, mid-20s. And um, I've seen, I'm seeing the same kind of thing happen with transgender civil rights that I've, that I saw happen with um, lesbian and gay rights. Uh, so students increasingly don't, you know, with gay and lesbian civil rights, um, it's hard to even have a conversation with students these days because they don't, they don't, the arguments against that just don't make sense to a lot of them. Um, so they feel so like, there's nothing to really discuss. Right. And I'm seeing a similar kind of thing happen with trans um, civil rights, that trans identities are much more familiar to this generation um, than they are to mine and uh, older people. Uh, so it, it's interesting and, and it gives me, it, it's heartening to see right. <laughs> Um Because, you know, the reality is, and we've seen a little bit of this also there, there's still a ways to go as far as giving transgender people full kind of inclusion into a civil rights paradigm.
0: And that's where... It's so important to be informed to educate ourselves, so we're not necessarily going to be going to college. You know, uh, a decade or three after we've graduated, we might, but but most of us will not be. So here, I feel that we can really get some good form of education by reading. Beyond trends, does gender matter, Heath? I feel that you've really covered so much territory which we've touched on, but again, you were saying your goal was to help to educate and inform.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why, you know, I wrote it um, with, you know, there are four chapters. It's not a, it's not a very, you know, um, uh, lengthy kind of book. It's, it's, it's manageable from that perspective. And I also, I really wanted to include um, human stories, as you mentioned, and a bit of my own uh, narrative also, because I think that, um, that that's, that helps us sort of break down the stereotypes. It helps to see that this is, you know, there's a real misconception, I think, and we've seen this in the media, that transgender uh, people, because they're a small numerical minority, that this is sort of like a trivial issue or it's not important. And I try to point out in the book that its civil rights protections are there precisely for people who are outnumbered um, in our society, therefore people who are in vulnerable social groups, um, so there's that to keep in mind, but also that transgender people have a lot in common with with everybody else, you know, so it's that kind of familiar story that we've seen before about um, moving from a position where you're just othering somebody and you can't understand them to really understanding that, you know, trans people are in our families, they're in our workplaces, they're... They're, they're, they're everywhere, we're, we're everywhere, and there's a lot more, more diversity among us um, uh, than people think, um, and so I'm hopeful, and I hope that the book um, can kind of be part of that you know, conversation par- uh, starter, perhaps, so that somebody picks it up and reads it and can kind of start a conversation in their workplace or where they go to school or some organization that they're a part of, or even their family um, would be... Um, would be incredibly uh, satisfying. And, and if I can do that, then I feel like I, I, I did my job.
0: Exactly. And I feel that that is the case. We should mention your website, that people can get more information about the book and just more about your work and what's going on. So the website that we should go to is?
1: Oh, it is heathfogdavis.com. So it's just H-E-A-T-H, fog f o g g Davis, dot
0: com. Great. So, in just the few minutes we have left, a couple of the the other two sections in the book that you touch on, not touch on, you go into in depth. Single sex colleges is a, an interesting chapter, and then sex segregated sports, and that might be something that I think we are seeing some barriers fall, but certainly not greatly and not a lot. And tell us about your feelings there.
1: Sure. And so um, the chapters, the case studies in the book are presented in the order of uh, the easiest to the most difficult, in my opinion. And so getting gender markers off of driver's licenses, as we started out talking about, I think is the most straightforward uh, case. Um, Then things get a little bit murkier when you get up to sports. I think that's the most challenging uh, case study because there are physiological factors that that give people a competitive edge, and so specifically testosterone. Um, and so, I talk. I go into what the International Olympic Committee and NCAA um, has done in terms of their testing for um, different uh, performance-enhancing drugs. Testosterone is one of them. So now, just briefly, the the International Olympic Committee used to do a bunch of really barbaric kind of sex testing and only on female athletes who wanted to compete as female. Um, Now they've moved to, they've dropped the language of sex testing, and now they just um, are using testosterone. So a person who wants to compete as female in the Olympics has to have a functional testosterone level that is um, below the range um, that's normal for men. Um, And so uh, this is interesting. So um, it presents another case here where um, you can actually, and I argue for this, get rid of the sex categories and just talk about hormone levels, because that's really what the issue is there. Although, as you alluded to, we also have a a lot of social tradition around women and men's sports, and there are social reasons for, especially at the recreational level, for uh, women wanting to play in a soccer league apart from men and vice versa. So I acknowledge that. But when it comes to the actual policies, and the the policies are more important at the competitive elite levels, you know, um, and so that's where you see this increasing attention to testosterone as the measure effectively of who gets to compete as female.
0: So we can see, we're hearing actually, how this covers the book, Beyond Trans: Does Gender Matter?, covers some of these, well, many of the critical areas in our lives that really gives us good insights, educates, and informs. So I do feel Heath Fog Davis that you have done us such a service by bringing this education right into our hands and we can do it whenever we feel that we've come up against something or we just really want to just be generally informed. So you have done such great work and I really appreciate that you've taken time with us this morning.
1: Oh thank you and thank you for the the kind words. I'm I'm hopeful for that and um, uh, it, it means a lot to for you to have me on on your show, and just to be able to have this conversation um, uh, means a lot to me, and I'm I'm hoping that the book can be, as we mentioned before, uh, something that can can start a
0: conversation. Exactly, indeed. Well, thank you. I believe you've done your part, and we just need to go forward, right? Exactly. (laughs) Well, thank you again. Thanks so much, Kate. I appreciate it.